0: Hello, and thank you for listening to Speaking from the Guadalajara, the Guadalajara Cohorts podcast series. Welcome to our second episode, Higher Power, where we'll explore the abstract ideas of religion, spirituality, and ecstasy in world music.
1: I'm Katie May, and I'm the historian. I'm E.A., and I'm the shaman.
2: I'm Carter, and I'm the ambassador. I'm your economist, Carter.
0: I'm Megan, and I'm the politician. And I'm Colleen, your ethnomusicologist and today's host. In today's podcast, we'll dive deeper into the diverse ways music can be used ceremonially, symbolically, and culturally. We'll explore globalization and politicization of musical traditions, but also take a look at specific religions such as Shintoism and Buddhism. Music's relationship with religion and cultural exclusivity connects to ideas covered in our prior podcast to share or to preserve. So if you haven't already, give that a listen. Without further ado, let's get right into our first segment.
1: Welcome to the first segment, Rewind,
0: where we take a look at how cultural histories have shaped the sounds of musical traditions.
1: This episode is hosted by your historian, Katie May,
0: and your ethnomusicologist, Colleen.
1: In regards to religion, the way the populations are spread over different countries or regions can impact what traditions or ideals are carried on and how prominent their influence may be to other cultures. I'm gonna take a moment to discuss this idea in the context of the histories of border construction in South Asia. One of these border developments occurred in 1947 when India gained independence from British control, causing the country to go through a major partition. At the time, the region had Hindu majority and Muslim minority, and in the border reconfiguration, the mostly Muslim northwestern India split off to become Pakistan.
0: So, did this split have any impact on the musical styles of the region?
1: Yes. Musically, the general migration of the Islamic religion to more northern India, among other border reconstructions, contributed to the eventual splitting of Indian classical music into two main styles, Hindustani from the north and Carnatic music from the south. The Islamic influence in the north introduced many Arab and Persian elements to the Hindu traditions in turn hindustani music developed alongside those elements whereas the more distant carnatic music had little to no influence from muslim cultures
0: katie i'm getting a lot of talk in the chat about how this religious migration created hybridity in regional styles bassoon lover 2003 asks how exactly are these emerging differences heard musically the implications these different
1: influences had on the two musical styles can be seen in the construction and classification of pieces as well as certain instrumentation for instance both hindustani and carnatic music use ragas which act as melodic frameworks and tala which focus on cyclic rhythmic patterns however their classifications of each may be different in hindustani music raga are grouped more so on mood or season and in carnatic music the distinctions are based more on technical aspects additionally instrumental music is more prevalent in hindustani music whereas Carnatic music tends to pair instruments and vocals together.
0: Wow, Katie! That goes to show how religious influences can heavily shape the way musical styles are developed. An example of an instrument that is
1: viewed very differently by religious groups is the gong. The sounding of the gong signifies the beginning and end of musical cycles in the Javanese gamelan, or, in our case, the transition into a
0: new topic. The gong has a very high significance in the culture of Javanese people. It is struck by the gamelin for courtly ceremonies and to announce the arrival of princes. The gong plays a vital role in ensembles.
1: Fun fact, did you know that music played by the gamelin was believed to have so much power that when it was transcribed, it was recommended to make some mistakes to prevent the power of the tune
0: from being used inappropriately? I didn't know that, but I believe it. Javanese people grant the gong such a high level of respect that it is acknowledged even by disparate religious groups. Islam doesn't view the gong reverently, due to long-standing Islamic beliefs condemning music and other performing arts. Additionally, the gong is held in such high regard in Javanese culture that it can give the impression of idolatry. For this reason, a compromise has been made between Muslims and the culture surrounding the Javanese gamelan. On days of Islamic religious significance, such as holidays and days of fasting, the gong is silenced out of respect. However, the gong plays such an important role in some Javanese ceremonies that prevents it from being silenced altogether. In this case, a quieter substitute would be used, or a fine would be paid to mosques.
1: Music is seen in a drastically different sense across these two cultures in Indonesia, and compromise must be made on both sides. Islamic tolerance of the gamelan and Javanese cooperation, despite differing ideas, exemplify Indonesia's model, or united
0: in diversity. Indonesia's unity, despite the collection of diverse cultures, reminds me of Shintoism, a religion characterized by its wide array of ideas. Shintoism is a conglomeration of many ideas taken from local and regional cults. It is a religion of constant change and adaptation with no clear concept of a god, no organized priesthood, no defined religious ceremonies, and most surprisingly, no acknowledgement of death.
3: Welcome to That's the Spirit with your hosts.
2: I'm Carter and I'm the ambassador.
3: Hi, my name's EA, and I'm the shaman. What you just heard was an excerpt of Shinto court music. We will dive into this topic very soon. We hope you enjoy our analysis of not only the globalization and cultural aspects of Japan and sub-Saharan Africa, but the religious and spiritual components of select faiths.
2: As EA mentioned, the excerpt that we just heard prior to this segment was a demonstration of Shinto music. Which is commonly referred to as Kagura. Kagura can be broken down into two branches, Mikagura and Sato Kagura. This particular excerpt was an example of Mikagura, which is Shinto court music. By contrast, Sato Kagura is Shinto folk music, which is performed at folk Shinto rituals. Kagura is considered highly sacred to Shintoists, which our shaman EA will address further in just a little bit. One of the unique elements of Shinto music is that it is native to Japan, Historically speaking, Japanese culture has been largely influenced by Chinese culture. Yet, Kagura is one of the forms of music in Japan that is indigenous to the nation, and is therefore entirely free of Chinese influence. This lack of Chinese influence in Kagura is mirrored in the lack of Chinese influence on Shintoism as a whole. Shintoism is a religion that Japan is proud to call its own.
3: Thank you so much, Carter, for your global and cultural perspective. Now, I'm going to talk about the religious and spiritual aspects of Shintoism in Japan. To start off with the smaller category, the quote-unquote religious aspects of Shintoism boil down to having a practice that worships gods and valuing rituals and music incorporated in Shintoism as a gift from God. Shintoism does not have a hereditary priesthood or theology with a rational basis. This makes it more of a folk religion feel with very spiritual aspects. The spiritual aspects of Shintoism vary more due to the loose organization of Shintoism and the variety of spirits one may worship based on where they are regionally located. Shintoism also had many different types of worship, some of which but are not limited to animism, nature worship, and fertility rites.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right, EA. Now we will discuss Buddhism and its musical implications. As the ambassador, I think it's important for me to point out that Buddhism, in stark contrast to Shintoism, was a direct result of Chinese and Korean influence in Japan. One of the great faults of Shintoism was that it failed to provide the people of Japan with a sufficient way of contending with death and suffering, the Buddhist tenet of reaching Nirvana filled this gap, and as a result, Buddhism became increasingly attractive to the people of Japan. It is also worth noting here that Japan, in turn, influenced Buddhism. The Japanese people highly valued life and nature, which began to manifest itself in Buddhism. Concerning the music of Buddhism, Shomyo is a notable example. Shomyo is a musical style in which Buddhist sutras are chanted in numerous language by a chorus of males. Similar to Shinto music, Shomyo is highly sacred.
3: Carter, it seems we are receiving a tweet from a fan of the podcast with a question. They said, hi, I'm still just a little confused on why Buddhism replaced Shintoism. Why wasn't Shintoism enough in Japan? And why did Buddhism have such a big appeal to the Japanese people? Well, that's a good question. During the time of the Nara period, Japan underwent a sharp population decline, losing about a quarter of their population. This brought great despair across the entire country and the people needed an organized uniting factor and a way to deal with death. As I mentioned earlier, Shintoism was not very organized in its worship styles, spirits, or practices. Shintoism also did not have a built-in way in its practice of how to deal with death. Buddhism, when introduced, was appealing because it was so structured and it had a clear methodology in how the Japanese people can get through such a dark time of death. The spiritual side of Buddhism is smaller, but not non-existent. When Buddhism meshed with Shintoism, It adopted some of its spiritual aspects, such as a greater emphasis on nature for a little bit. This blended model allowed the Japanese people to gain benefits from both religions during this time.
2: Finally, we will discuss the music of Stambele. Stambele is a form of trance music that was brought to Tunisia by the descendants of sub-Saharan slaves in the 18th and 19th centuries. Generations that succeeded these slave descendants were primarily Muslim and were raised speaking Arabic as their native language these subsequent generations formulated a tradition of spirit possession in music. Despite the Islamic background of these subsequent generations, many sub-Saharan instruments, languages, and aesthetics persisted in the spirit possession tradition.
3: Now for the religious and spiritual aspects of stambeli. As far as religious aspects, no matter what ritual is being performed, it always starts with songs praising the Prophet Muhammad and Bilal. This is a form of organization regarding which gods remain constant within stambeli. For the spiritual side, rituals are more specific after the first songs, based on what spirit they are worshiping and sacrificing to. In Stombella, you play the spirit's favorite songs, sacrifice animals, and burn the spirit's favorite incest. The patient to the rituals falls into a trance and then usually passes out as a sign of the spirit leaving their body.
4: Welcome to the next segment of this podcast, What's Fair in Money in Politics, where we'll discuss how political and economic factors affect religion and spirituality in music.
5: Hosted by your politician, Megan.
4: And your economist, Carter.
5: One concept that we are all probably familiar with is religious persecution. Even part of the foundation of some settlers moved to the United States in the colonial era was the desire for religious freedom, something we all learned about back in elementary school. Something we maybe didn't learn about was the way forced migration can overlap with religious persecution and the way that religions are affected because of it. Since cultural suppression and assimilation are huge parts of slavery, religious traditions either die out or are forced to adapt in order to survive. One example of religious intermingling and adaptation that I'll be talking about today is Cuban Santería. It began in the early 19th century when African slaves along with their Yoruba traditions, were brought to Cuba, which, at the time, was under Spanish rule. The Africans were then subjected to conversion to Roman Catholicism, but they still preferred their own traditions and rituals, as they found them more fulfilling. In order to continue practicing their religion, early devotees disguised their gods as Catholic saints, while still taking part in African music and rituals. This also occurred in the case of the Afro-Brazilian religion of Candomblé. The use of Catholic saints to identify the African deities or Orishas, was meant to hide the African nature of the belief system and to appear as, quote, good Catholics in the religiously intolerant colonial period.
4: Hey, Megan. It appears that we have a listener calling in with a question. We do hear all the time about governments suppressing religion, but have there been times where religions have flourished under certain governments?
5: Good question. And now that I've talked about religion existing and changing in opposition to the government, it's only fitting for me to switch over to the exact opposite, religion being the government. This would be called a theocracy, defined by Encyclopaedia Britannica as government by divine guidance or by officials who are regarded as divinely guided. A historical example of this would be ancient Egypt, where the pharaohs were considered to have been chosen by the gods. The most well-known current example of a theocracy would be Vatican City, but others include Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Sudan. In a theocracy, everything that is religious is, naturally, also inherently political, due to religion and the political sphere being synonymous. It could be said, then, that religious music is a type of propaganda, since it is meant to fuel one's connection with their religion and, thus, the state. One such musical tradition that is characterized by the listener's strong emotional connection to the music is tarab. Tarab has no exact English equivalent, but it is known as a sense of musical enchantment associated with traditional Arab music. Listeners are ideally emotionally enthralled by the music and may react physically at times by clapping, shouting, or crying.
4: Religion and politics are certainly interconnected, but so are religious practices and economics. One example of this can be found in Korea, where there is a huge identity crisis. Korea had spent so many years being an agrarian bureaucracy influenced by China, But during the Korean War, American and Russian forces introduced their own ideas, religions, and economic systems. All of these influences left Korea in a state where it struggled to find what is uniquely Korean. Not Chinese, not American, Korean. Korea's economy went from being an agrarian bureaucracy, which is based on farming, to a more capitalist society in the South and a more communist society in the North. This left many struggling to adapt to new ways of life, new languages taught in schools, and many new religious concepts as well. Old shamanist practices became westernized or canonized and are not often used for ceremonial or spiritual purposes anymore, but are instead performed on a stage. One example of this is sinali, which is improvised chamber music that consisted of five to 10 musicians, but was canonized and is now written down and performed based on the shi music. Korea used living tones and rough beauty in a lot of its shaminous music, including pansori, or musical storytelling. But now, music Korea produces includes the westernized K-pop, which is known internationally and is economically prosperous, just like the stage performances.
5: Shifts like this in political and economic structure have led to changes in the way types of music are utilized. Where opportunities for traditional music to be incorporated into daily life were erased, Korea now has a highly lucrative genre that people across the world consume and associate with Korean culture. Korea now does have something else that is distinctly Korean, but it came with the loss of another aspect of distinctly Korean identity at the hands of Westernization. Would you look at that! Sounds like it's time for our last segment, and new edition this week. Objection, Your Honor! we'll be making
0: connections between this week's topic and ideas from our first episode. So I hope you've been listening in. In this segment, Megan and I will dive into the concepts of inclusivity and exclusivity in Native American music, as well as its overlaps with sacred practices.
5: Thanks, Colleen. Indigenous music is so exclusive because oftentimes the songs are not meant to be shared. There are songs and dances in indigenous cultures that belong to particular families. Some are only sung when a certain family member dies and others are only meant for members of that family to sing, depending on the specific culture. Other musical traditions are used to build relationships between people, such as katajait, a practice of vocal games played by Inuit women. It involves a wide variety of vocal sounds, some imitating sounds of nature, like the honking of geese. This is a demonstration of the way musical traditions can connect people with one another and their environment through a custom that is very exclusive, not just to indigenous people or even Inuit people, but also women. In addition, music is used as a way to build relationships with spirits. Those who communicate with spirits through dreams and visions may receive songs that way as well. Since these experiences hold a lot of weight, the people who experience them speak of them rarely, if at all, in order to not disrespect the spirits.
0: That's really interesting, Megan. Another element of Native American music that adds to its exclusivity is the treatment of instruments. Many indigenous instruments are closely bound to sacred practices and may have specific rules in how and when they are used. These practices are detailed in this excerpt from Britannica, an online encyclopedia, which says, North American powwow drums are placed on a blanket or stand during performance and are covered when not in use. They are smudged with tobacco in a special sunrise ceremony before the public powwow events, and neither drugs nor alcohol may be used near the drums. These practices maintain respect for instruments in Native cultures. However, their vast differences from Western norms regarding treatment of instruments can baffle those outside Indigenous communities. The music you just heard was from the Alexis Sue 2021 Pow Wow a way non-natives can take part in indigenous culture. Powwows are large social gatherings that invite various tribes and even non-natives to participate in celebrations through singing, dancing, and ceremonies. There are two main types of powwows, competition and traditional. Competitive powwows, which are essentially dance competitions across tribes for prizes, attract large non-native audiences. This spectatorship at competition powwows is encouraged because tribes display their best native dancing, And proudly showcase their culture. Dancing at traditional powwows is more experience-based, so there are less non-native guests and more interaction between tribes. This affects the music because drum beats for dances must be played straight and consistent, so many tribes can dance to it. Dancers and singers from other tribes are welcomed by local communities hosting powwows and thanked for their participation through small gifts.
5: Circling back to our discussion of exclusivity, A final important and very unfortunate reason that indigenous music is so exclusive is that the numbers of indigenous peoples themselves have diminished very significantly over the past 500 years. The initial arrival of Christopher Columbus and European settlers caused the massive spread of disease in the region, resulting in the loss of 50% of the American indigenous population in only a few years, according to a genetic study reported by National Geographic. Beyond that, the indigenous people faced tremendous loss of land, as they were pushed westward, away from their homes. This pattern of indigenous land being stolen was not short-lived, and it left indigenous communities in few reservations, continually disenfranchised by the United States government. It's incredibly difficult to keep traditions alive when the numbers of those who practice them are dwindling. Some aspects of indigenous music are so exclusive because they are meant to be, but there is a difference between exclusivity and extinction. If I were to ask the last podcast's question of to share or to preserve, the answer for some of these traditions would, unfortunately, be neither.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today in our discussion of the roles music can play in religion and spirituality across cultures. I'd like to give a special thank you to our avid listeners who enhance our podcast with their thought-provoking questions and ideas. We hope to see you next time on Speaking from the Guadalajara. Until then, we are the Guadalajara cohort. Ka-chow.